I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We come to the point in the week where we get to look at God's Word together after a, maybe a long week for you, and I am excited to jump into what God's Word has to say from Philippians chapter 3. Uh, tonight we'll be in Philippians 3 starting in verse 12, but for context, and we haven't been in Philippians in a few weeks, let's go back to verse 7, Philippians 3, beginning in verse 7 for a little bit of context, and we'll start from there. Paul writes, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything, if, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Father, thank you for the incredible truth of your word. I pray that you would impress it upon our hearts by the power of your Spirit tonight and uh, that our lives would be changed, that, Lord, you would teach us how to walk faithfully as pilgrims here on this earth. Uh, use your word, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you have good situational awareness? Do you have good situational awareness? Now, some of you looked to the person next to you and smiled. Uh, others of you immediately thought of somebody, and we won't talk about why. Situational awareness. It's knowing where you are and what is going on around you and how to act appropriately. It's how to assess and then act in a certain situation or place. It's something that all of us should have, but uh, some of us don't. It's why you keep quiet in Powell, or it's why you raise your voice when it's loud, or why you raise your voice when you talk to your grandma, or it's why you nudge your boyfriend at the restaurant, or give your mom that look when she doesn't stop. Situational awareness is something that we all should have, but that we need reminding in, a nudge, a, a look from a friend to be reminded. Last time we were in Philippians, at the beginning of the quarter, we looked at the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. 
and how that leads us to forsake our own righteousness and embrace the perfect righteousness of Christ. And we saw that for those who are Christians, we are, as verse 9 says, we just read, found in him. So our reality is that we are united with Christ. And in verse 10, we know him and know the power of his resurrection. Here and now we know that. Romans 6 says we have been raised to newness of life. That is our current reality. And yet at the same time, we, in Philippians 3, verse 11, await the final resurrection from the dead, the hope of full and final and future glory in Christ. And so in respect to resurrection, we live in this already but not yet existence. And here in our passage tonight, Paul continues this thought, and he shows us how to live with a situational awareness, so to speak, in that resurrected, yet awaiting resurrection sort of existence. The composure and the confidence we are to have as we await final resurrection in Christ. In studying this passage, I was reminded of one of the great allegories for the Christian life, the allegory of Pilgrim's Progress. And that book, that great book, was written by John Bunyan, a Puritan preacher of the 1600s, a a world ago from where we are today. In that book, it traces the journey of a man aptly named... Christian, as he leaves everything behind, even his wife and his children, and he travels from his hometown called the City of Destruction, and he travels toward the celestial city. And along the way, Christian encounters a variety of also aptly named people like worldly wise man and ignorance and faithful and hopeful, all characters along the way that he would walk with or meet along the way. Also, he would run into landmarks like the slew of despond or the hill of difficulty or the valley of the shadow of death. And Christian, by faith, traverses each one of these interactions and obstacles all on this journey heavenward to the celestial city. It's this idea of the pilgrim that I am drawn toward as we look at Philippians 3. At all times, we must, as pilgrims in this world, those journeying toward our heavenly home, we must press on faithfully. We must know how we are to journey in this reality of having been already raised to new life in him and yet as with a hope of life in the celestial city. If we are to remain faithful, we must be ready for all manner of spiritual obstacle. If we are to remain faithful, we must uh, distinguish between friend and foe. If we are to remain faithful, we must remember that we have a righteousness not of our own, but that of our, our Savior, Jesus Christ, by grace through faith. And we must continue on steadfastly in that faith. The passage before us tonight shows us that there must be a real and actual strategy to the Christian life. Our faith is an active faith, and it applies to and engages in all of life. And so there must be a thoughtful, measured approach as to how we press on in this pilgrim life. There must be, you could say, a situational awareness that leads us to living and journeying faithfully. So let's look at four strategies for faithful pilgrims so that we might reach the end for strategies for faithful pilgrims. And the first is that we must press on. 
must press on. Paul begins this section with a familiar metaphor. It's the picture of the Christian life as a race, uh, as the person running a race. This is reminiscent of 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul talks about running to win a prize, not a perishable wreath, but one that is imperishable. Or it's also reminiscent of Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And that's the metaphor Paul uses here as well. Look at verse 12 again. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own without, uh, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Uh, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Here Paul is showing us by his own example that in the Christian race, we must press on. Literally this word means to hasten or to run. We must not be satisfied simply with gaining Christ and his righteousness at the point of salvation, but we must continue. We must hasten on. We must press on to grow in our knowledge of him. We must run the race with endurance. We must run with steadfastness and be focused, not running aimlessly, as 1 Corinthians 9 says. We must not give up. We must press on in following Christ. Now notice first the reason Paul presses on at the end of verse 12. He says, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You see, GOC, we press on because this is the purpose for which Christ Jesus has made us his own. We press on because Pressing on shows that we are truly His. That we press on because it shows others this surpassing worth of knowing Him. Him who made us His own. Ours is a living faith. A faith that works itself out. We saw that in chapter 2, verse 12. Ours is a faith that demonstrates itself as a worthy display of the Gospel. We looked at chapter 1, verse 27. And our faith demonstrates itself in love and in obedience and in character and in all these different kinds of ways. But here, our faith demonstrates itself in steadfast and humble pursuit of knowing Christ. Our faith demonstrates itself in pressing on. You see, we have no righteousness of our own. And so we must press on not to earn anything or to maintain anything, but to obtain what is already ours in Christ. In a sense, as Christians, we have already been told that we will win this race. Uh, The banner is ours for the taking. We must simply complete the race. And so our response must not be to stop and revel in that victory. We must press on to indeed win the race and press on with victory in view. John Piper says it this way, simply, we are running as victors. And so we must press on because... Christ has made us his own. Now for Paul, there is a great paradox to the Christian life. We have, in being made his own, as we learned last time, the perfect righteousness of Christ. We have his righteousness by the grace of God. And yet to Paul, because Christ has not yet returned the reality of final resurrection has not yet come to fruition. And so it is not 
impossible logically to have arrived in regards to being fully like Christ. We have not yet arrived in regards to Christ-likeness. Only in the fullness of glory, that is the resurrected and returning Christ, the, the future resurrection from the dead, can we be made perfect in his holiness. We have not yet arrived. That is a fact. We are not yet fully formed in Christ-likeness. And yet we do have the perfect righteousness of Christ. Now Paul twice reiterates this imperfection, this incompleteness of the Christian life. Look again at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it, uh, this, or am already perfect. And then in verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Twice here he reiterates that it, he has not arrived. He has not yet obtained it. Paul is showing us here there is a profound humility that marks this pilgrim way of life. Uh, this pressing on is an act of humble dependence on God. You see, you must understand both how sure it is that by the grace of God and through faith, you are Christ's and you have his perfect righteousness. And at the same time, at every point in the Christian life from spiritual infancy to decades of following Jesus, you must be keenly aware how much infinitely more there is to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Some of you, already now, as young people, you think you've already reached it. You think there's nothing left to learn. You think, and maybe it's in your pride, or maybe it's just in your isolated bubble of an existence, or it's just in your head, that because things are going good, or because no one's really pushing back in your life, or because you have all of the answers and insights that no one else seems to have, that you've arrived, that you've made it. And yet the Apostle Paul, one of the godliest people to ever follow Christ, says here, I've not attained it. I'm not already perfect. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Grace on Campus, foundational to how pilgrims progress faithfully is a humble awareness that you have not yet arrived in your holiness or yet to the celestial city. You have not and cannot outpace the resurrection for which we await you must press on in knowing and loving and being more like him don't let any spiritual achievement or any blessing in your life that you see as a sign that God is approving of you let none of that allow you to think that you've made it to some higher plane of godliness because that is the very moment that an unapproachable pride is creeping into your life. Kent Hughes says it this way, the more we come to know Christ, the more we will come to sense our need to grow. In verse 13, Paul gives us more on this idea of pressing on this humble act of dependence upon God. And he boils it all down to one thing. He says, but one thing I do. Literally, it just says in the original, one thing. And it states what it is. And it's funny because he says, one thing I do, and then he lists two things, really. Uh, he says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. It's one idea with two aspects to it. 
We are to forget what lies behind and we are to strain forward to what lies ahead. You see, as we run this race with endurance, we are to lay aside our past achievements and successes. We saw that in the beginning of chapter 3. We are to lay aside also the guilt and the shame of all of our past sin. We are to forget what lies behind and press on to what lies ahead. And what's ahead is the prize in verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The prize of final resurrection when on that day Christ returns and we are caught up to meet him in the air. Yet until that day, we forget what lies behind and we press on. We press on. We press on in knowing Christ. We press on in loving Christ. We press on in serving Christ. In Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, the main character, runs into two men at the top of the hill of difficulty. Their names are mistrust and timorous. Timorous is an old English word that means fearful or apprehensive. These two men, mistrust and timorous, try to get Christian to turn back. And uh, Bunyan is so crafty, he uses in these two men the excuse, and they literally say, proverbially, they say, there were lions in the road. That's from the Proverbs. And they try to convince Christian to turn back to the city of destruction. And Christian ponders that fact of the lions in the road. And he says a few things, and then he says this famous line. He says, to go back is nothing but death. To go forward is fear of death. And life everlasting beyond it. I will yet go forward. Friends, we don't reach back, whether to justify ourselves with badges of honor, or we don't reach back to feel better about ourselves with our accomplishments, or reach back to indulge ourselves in the memory of past sin. We don't reach back in guilt to rehearse and replay what has already been forgiven by Christ. We don't go back to a life outside of trusting Christ and pressing on and trusting his righteousness. That which is behind is behind and only a distraction to our pressing on for the prize. Christ is now and always our all. And for the sake of knowing him, we have forsaken all of ourselves and we have forsaken all of the world. And now as we follow him on this pilgrim way, we continue to lay aside every sin and every weight present and past. And we press on. And as we press on, Look at God's gracious dealings with us. Look at verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Paul's instruction here is for all of us, mature and immature. It should make, a, it should make sense to a, a group like this because so many of you are mature in the faith and able to see here in this passage the reality of not yet having arrived, and therefore you see your need to press on. But when we don't understand just how much we need to grow, when we don't see we need to press on instead of wallowing in complacency or carelessness, God will graciously Reveal that to us. What a gracious God we have that He would give us the means to press on and the reason to press on in being found in Him. And Paul's safe assurance, surely rooted in his logic in Philippians 1 6, that God will complete the work He has began 
that he will reveal to us when we are lacking. Friends, on this pilgrim way, our main manner of existence, our responsibility is to hold true to what we have attained in Christ. We are to press on. There's another strategy for faithful pilgrims in verses 17 to 19, and it's to heed examples. We press on, and then we heed examples. Paul builds on this picture of the pilgrim pressing on, and in these verses we see another strategy, that we must heed both good and bad examples of people around us. Look at verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul first puts himself and those with him, perhaps Timothy, uh, forward as a positive example. But then he also broadens it just a little bit. He says there, those also who walk according to the example you have in us, probably uh, pointing to leaders even in the Philippian church faithful people. Now notice though, or note, and sort of study with me here, what exactly it is that this imitation specifically is in. It's in what has been in view in this chapter. Imitating others in pursuit of knowing Christ and following Christ in deepening and strengthening a relationship with him and the power of his resurrection. It's imitating others in their pressing on. I think we get stuck here sometimes on what Paul is saying here because we assume what Paul is talking about is super broad. We think that it's this kind of wholesale imitation that we are just to imitate other more godly people in our ministry. That discipleship and followership means imitation in anything and everything. That to follow someone as they follow Christ means just doing everything they do. Liking all the same things they like. Listening to the same things they listen to. And even saying the same phrases they say. And some of you do that. (laughs) Real good. Sometimes I forget that you're not your small group leader. And by the end of the year, you are, and you sound like, and you look like, and you prefer like, and you talk like your discipler or your friends. But you're not necessarily more like Christ. And I believe it's because you've bought into Christian discipleship as sort of wholesale imitation on sort of a mindless, just outward level. It's a danger in that. I think there's others of you in this room that shy away from what Paul is saying here, this kind of imitation, uh, specifically in uh, pressing on in knowing Christ. Uh, You shy away from that because you think it means you can't be yourself. Uh, You think that uh, to be with and to learn from and yes, even imitate in certain specific ways, the way that someone older and wiser lives for Jesus would cramp your style or infringe upon your cool factor in some kind of way. It wouldn't let you be you. And so my fear is that for one reason or another, Uh, We are ignoring the incredible help that God has given us in the godly people around us if we are not grasping the heart of what Paul is saying here. Uh, We ought to see in godlier, wiser people uh, not a checklist of things to do to become more godly, or a hindrance to our individualism, an infringement to our entitlements. But rather, we ought to see their heart. Their heart of pursuing a fuller and a 
deeper relationship with Jesus. And we should imitate that. We ought to see in godlier and wiser people, underneath all of the outward parts, the great help and much-needed example God provides for us in them. This is 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Or Hebrews 13.7, Remember, speaking of leaders and imitating leaders, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Imitate their faith. Imitate their pressing on. Imitate their pursuit of knowing Christ, their love for Christ, their desire to submit to Christ. Well, for us tonight, it's not enough to simply see and imitate examples of persevering faith in Christ. In Philippians 3, Paul also has for us help in heeding the warning examples of those who are opposed to Christ. Look at verse 18 of Philippians 3. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. There is a sobering reality here. As Paul points us to heed the example of those who walk now as enemies of the cross of Christ, there is an obvious humility and a gravitas in Paul's heart here in how he understands and sort of processes those who now oppose the cross of Christ. The implication is that these people once did follow Christ and now they oppose the cross of Christ. Like in 1 Corinthians, they call it folly. That these are those who have not pressed on these are those who have turned back in their pilgrim journey and are headed back to the city of destruction. These are those who hunger for the things of this world and whose selfish ambition have, has overshadowed the preciousness of Christ. The sad and serious reality for all those who may even seem to have followed Jesus at some point. And yet now turn their back on the living God and oppose the cross of Christ. The sad reality is, verse 19, in the beginning there, their end is destruction. Their end is in eternity, in hell, separated forever from God. And I think this is a tearful reminder for even our own souls, for us to examine, to see if we are in the faith. But it's also a tearful reminder for us to see the real and actual danger to our own souls if we are not careful about the influence of these kinds of people in our lives. That by their influence, we too may be convinced to stop pressing on. We all probably know someone like this. Someone whose innocent intellectual curiosity causes them to question and challenge everything. And then that curiosity becomes superiority. It's not a humble heart. It's not faith seeking understanding. But a prideful, self-centered, self-justifying rampage against Christ and Paul is pointing out for us here uh, the basis of this destructive reality of these people their God is their belly and they glory in their shame they mock the cross of Christ and their minds are set on earthly things and no matter how objective and intellectual and polite they may seem this kind of person has a moral problem with their creator 
made in the image of God to worship Him and live for Him. This kind of person is concerned instead only with his or her own self. Justifying his or her own existence. Pleasing his or her own self. Whether intellectually or fleshly. This person is their own God. Their own authority. Their own end goal. And so tearfully, Paul points these people out as examples to heed and to see as those who did not press on. This is what Psalm 14 calls the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. There is no God. Or what James 3 describes as one operating on worldly wisdom, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist. This kind of person leads a life, lives in a reality that is the opposite of Philippians 2, verse 3. This person does everything from selfish ambition and conceit. This person counts themselves more significant than everyone else around them. And Paul is saying here, heed this example of those who oppose the cross of Christ as a chilling reminder of who you once were and who you could prove to be if you do not press on. Paul has further help for us as pilgrims in this world. And praise God, that help is not found in other people around us. It's a third strategy. Paul shows us here in verses 20 and 21 to look up. Look up. Look at verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Uh, Paul, as he ushers us along in our journey, he points us heavenward to the celestial city And he's saying, look up, Christian. Look to the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Look up to your heavenly home. Look up to where you belong, to where your citizenship is. This idea of citizenship is a concept we saw in chapter 1, verse 27. That we are to be citizens, living worthy of the gospel. It says there, only let your manner of life, only let your manner of living as a citizen, literally, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And now Paul here in chapter 3 is saying, live as citizens of heaven. Now don't live with your minds set on earthly things like those bad examples, but press on and seek that which is above. That's what Paul says in Colossians 3, flip over there, Colossians 3. Beginning of Colossians 3, look at verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Our gaze is to be fixed heavenward. And not just because the sky is blue. We need to look up because Philippians 3 verse 20 tells us, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power of God. We anticipate our great Savior's return, and when He returns, final resurrection will come to fruition. Our pilgrim journey, our pressing on in this life will be no more, and our lowly body will be transformed by the power of God to be like His glorious body. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 with me to see this truth, this resurrection truth. 1 Corinthians 15 is the great chapter on resurrection. Its necessity and its significance to the Christian life. 
verse 28, we won't read that, but it shows us that it's a reference really to the power of God who subjects all things to Christ and therefore Christ is subjected to God under him that God may be glorified all in all. But look at verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's the transformation of our lowly bodies. And then verse 52, uh, middle of 51, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must, be, must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so back in Philippians 3, Paul is saying, in light of this amazing transformation, we will all experience that 1 Corinthians 15 describes this liberation from the frustration of our earthly bodies. Paul is saying, because of that amazing reality in the future, we ought now to understand our need to press on. And how do we press on? We do so with our heavenly home ever on the horizon, our gaze fixed on our citizenship, our home. Christian in Pilgrim's Progress had traversed in many difficult trials and deflected some of the most vehement opponents and people who had tried to convince him to turn back. And he had rejected the possibility of other paths to the celestial city, knowing that there was only one straight and true. And he gets toward the celestial city. And there's a scene I want to read you because uh, Christian and his friend that's with him, they fall sick. But they fall sick in the best kind of way with pangs desiring heaven because they have this heavenward gaze. Paul Bunyan writes it this way. As they walked through this country, they had more joy than they had known in the places more remote from the kingdom to which they were going. Drawing nearer, they had a more perfect view of the city and could see it was built of pearls and precious stones, and the streets were paved with gold. By reason of the natural glory of the city and the reflection of the sunbeams upon it, Christian, with deep desire, fell sick. Hopeful, his friend, also had a siege of discontent. So here they lay for days, crying out because of the pangs of their heart, saying, if you see my beloved, Tell him that I am sick with love. When there is that inevitable feeling of despondency or despair uh, between the way that the world is, uh, the way that the world gets to enjoy life, and the way that you as a Christian are instead to be devoted to Christ, pressing on toward the goal. Uh, when this world seems alien, it's because it is. When we feel like we don't belong, we don't. Look up, Christian. Turn your gaze heavenward and see the reward that awaits you that is far greater than any earthly treasure and that treasure is to be eternally with Christ. 1 John 3, 2 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall, we shall see him as he is. Friends, we must remember that our citizenship is in heaven. Oh, we belong to our heavenly home, and in eternity, we belong in our Savior's embrace.
look up and look to the reward. Lastly, uh, the fourth strategy for faithful pilgrims is found in chapter 4, verse 1, and it's stand firm. Stand firm. Paul rounds out these strategies with a call to stand firm. Look there at 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Notice the very personal address here. Uh, My brothers, my beloved, whom I love and long for. For Paul, this is nothing new. Throughout this book, we have seen Paul's uh, affection for these believers. In chapter 1, we spent a great deal of time talking about Paul's affection in gospel partnership with these friends. Uh, This has been a heartfelt and sort of emotional letter for Paul. He has a sincere admiration for what the Lord is doing in this church and through this church. And that's why the Philippians are Paul's joy and crown. They share in the joy of salvation, and they themselves are the fruit of Paul's ministry in Acts 16, as we saw. And they have shared in ministry partnership with him by giving money and support. We'll see even in the next chapter. And they are standing with him and with each other, firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so Paul witnesses what God has done from Lydia's conversion on the riverbank to these believers' faithful partnership even now. And they are his joy and his crown of reward in heaven for his faithful ministry. And to these Dear saints, journeying in this foreign world, Paul has a simple command to cap this all off. Stand firm. Stand firm. It's a picture we've seen before. It's a soldier bracing for combat, for impact. It's a ready stance. And it's kind of a mixed metaphor here in this passage. We are to press on. We are to run. We are to hasten but we must also stand firm. It's this idea in chapter 3, verse 16, to let us hold true. It's the idea found in Ephesians 6, to put on the full armor of God and be ready, and having done all, to stand firm, knowing our battles are spiritual and not of uh, this uh, earth. Uh, We must not be tossed around by every wind and wave of doctrine. We must stand firm. Uh, We must uh, not be carried away with the error of lawless people. We must stand firm. Uh, We must not be taken captive by philosophy or empty deceit. We must stand firm. We must not be double-minded or unstable in our ways. We must stand firm. Our minds have been on resurrection here in Philippians 3. And at the end of the great chapter on resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding, in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You see, Paul was writing in 1 Corinthians 15 and here in Philippians 3 about a future reality, the final resurrection, completeness, fullness in Christ, fully in his likeness we will be. And he was saying in light of that future reality, behave this way, act this way. Be aware of your situation and and operate this way. And his command in both instances, stand firm. Stand firm. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, himself was a faithful pilgrim in his journey of life. He had a tough life. He he served in the army for a little bit and uh, married his first wife soon after that and then became a pastor, and then his first wife passed away, and so he married a second time, and all along there he had four children, one of whom was born blind. 
As a Puritan pastor, he was imprisoned twice for preaching the gospel without a license. And during his first imprisonment, which was 12 years long, he wrote a tender-hearted autobiography called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Taking Paul's phrase there and showing his tenderness of heart and his desire for others to understand God's grace in that same way. And in that first imprisonment, he also began writing Pilgrim's Progress, which would later be published and sell 100,000 copies in the first 10 years, which is astronomical for that era. Bunyan spent that first imprisonment with just a Bible and a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs. This great thick book about people who had died for Jesus, who had finished the, the race, who had fought the fight, who were faithfully pressing on and they faced a decision to either give up what they had and turn back to the city of destruction or to press on and pay with it for their lives. And he spent that entire 12 years with just those two books and writing some of his own. And Spurgeon said this later of Bunyan. He said, prick him anywhere and you will find that his blood Bunyan's is Bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. I'm sure Bunyan knew our passage, Philippians 3, well. Perhaps even on his mind sometimes as he wrote that great allegory of Pilgrim's Progress. And yet, if nothing else, absolutely, in the way that he lived his life faithfully pressing on, Bunyan knew Philippians 3. May we, like Bunyan and like Christian, press on. Heed the examples of those around us, both bad and good and bad. And would we look up to the hope of heaven? And would we stand firm, waiting for a Savior? the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Until then, would we press on and stand firm, knowing our righteousness is not of our own, but that of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the great challenge that it is sometimes to our hearts to see our own uh, inability and inadequacy in doing what this passage calls us to do, and that is to faithfully press on. Lord, we so many times feel frail and weak and unable. Uh, we feel so prone to the temptations of this earth. We, Lord, feel so uh, inevitably sinful in this existence. But Father, help us to see uh, our citizenship is in heaven. And we await that Savior. And as we await, Father, you have given us so much grace that you will reveal these things also to us. That you will help us and show us that we have the means to follow Christ and to press on faithfully as pilgrims in this journey. So, Father, help us, we ask. It's a, a prayer of humility even tonight for our ministry uh, to press on faithfully by your strength. And so we ask and now we sing in response and worship to you in Jesus' name. Amen.